Hi, I'm Alice Lee, and I'm Michelle Yim. We made it our mission to help you to get the tools you need to take your creative endeavor to the next level. Each week on our podcast, we'll be interviewing guests from different creative industries to share their insights on their chosen path, so you can be empowered to be who you truly are. Creation Collective, free to be. Welcome back to Creation Collective. It's Alice Lee here. This week's episode is a continuation of last week's interview with writer Ming Ho. So, if you have not listened to last week's episode, I strongly urge you to listen to how she started out as a writer and what her experience is like writing British long-running series such as Casualty and EastEnders. This week, she will dive deep and let us know how she channels her creativity on paper, as well as discussing how her heritage has influenced her work. So, are you ready to be inspired? Let's go. So now I want to focus back onto you yourself and your work. I know your relationship with your mother, which you've mentioned, who unfortunately you've lost to dementia, and you have drawn from that experience of caring for your mother into your work in the Writers Guild Great Britain Best Radio Drama in 2018 for the BBC Radio called "The Things We Never Said." It is very moving, set in a very surreal setting. Can you talk us through how that play came together? It's a two-hander for a mother and daughter, and so it's based on me and my mum, although it's not literally us. It came out of another play that I'd written on the Royal Court. I was on the Royal Court Writers Group. It's the first year they had done their writers group for people over the grand old age of 26, and so I wrote a play on that. And I actually, I was very fortunate. They gave me a day's workshop with a proper cast, and Lucy Morrison directed it to workshop the play that I'd written on that, which was a another play called. Exhumation. So it was a kind of semi-realistic, which had some scenes with the mother and daughter in a realistic way, and then it had a subplot about the woman and a man. There was a kind of metaphoric strand about a house being repaired from subsidence, which again something that really happened in our lives. But I was using it as a metaphor for my mum's mental disintegration. And then I decided that actually the core of what I wanted to say was about the relationship between the mother and daughter. What I wanted to do was explore actually what I was struggling with myself, which was the mental. The emotional and philosophical difficulty of maintaining a relationship with somebody when the person you love most, who actually gave birth to you, doesn't know who you are anymore, and so all of your shared memory is gone, and all that they remember is literally what's happening in the moment they can see, hear, and feel now. So that was my starting point for that play. Was okay if I sit here now. How would I define myself, having my cognition as my mother doesn't? How would I describe myself? How do I know who I am? And emotionally, I found all of that very hard to cope with because she's still my mum. I know who she is, but she has no idea who I am. So I was trying to imagine for myself, what does she see when she looks at me? I'm just this woman in a room. How can I make a connection with her? So it's a play that kind of imagines from two people's points of view. It's set in a kind of undefined space, which is kind of notionally the room that they meet in every week. But actually, it's a mental space where they're trying to connect with their memories of what their life was. Or the feeling of what they are now. You know, it, it's about the relationship. It's about mothers and daughters, and fundamentally, it's about how do you know who you are and how do you know who you love? Because we take for granted that if you love somebody, that's going to be so strong that even if they don't remember stuff, they will still feel it. But when you deconstruct it, all love is based on some form of memory. I think. I'm sorry, I can tell she meant a lot to you, and I'm sure it was a very painful loss. 
that then won you the award. The ironic thing is, of course, you started once right about other people, but it is when you truly delve into your own world, your own pain, and really dip into what connects you, then you have this accolade. How did it feel to win that award? Obviously, it was really thrilling. And, you know, I'm really honoured. And I think, yes, obviously, I've always known that the best things are the most truthful things. But I think it has taken me a long time to find the thing that I can be that truthful about. It was mixed feeling because, obviously, it was a thing that I'd written, which was about me and my mum. And the one person who could never know about it was my mum. Because although she was still alive at that point, I could never tell her about it. She'd never heard the play. I could never tell her about the play because she couldn't understand by that point. And so that was a very mixed blessing is that I got the award and it was nice and my agent came with me again because I don't have any family, I don't have a partner, I don't have kids, which is partly what the play's about as well is if all of your life has been invested in this principal relationship and it's, it's taken away from you while the person is still physically there. You know, coming to terms with that is very hard. So, you know, it's lovely. I won the award. Um, I'm very honoured to have the award. I'm very pleased I've got it. But then I went home on the bus with my award. You know, I got home and there was nobody there. And I thought what I would have done in the old days was ring my mum. And I couldn't do that. It was quite sad in that respect. And did that open doors for you, having won that award? Not instantly, it didn't, to be honest. I mean, I think the thing is that I'm still hoping, because I wrote it initially as a stage play on spec. And immediately after that, I was hoping that we would get a stage production of it. And there was a producer who was interested in picking it up. And we almost got to the point of being a reality. And then for various reasons, it didn't. And then kind of, you know, obviously COVID has happened and everything in the meantime. I feel quite frustrated by that because I think that although the radio production was wonderful, what I was really touched by was that the audience reaction to that play was phenomenal, that it went out with no fanfare. It was my first radio play, so it didn't have any publicity really from the BBC. The response on on Twitter and social media was amazing. And again, this is a great lesson is the more specific you are, the more personal and truthful and direct you are about a very specific setting and experience, the more universal it is because so many people said, this is my story. I feel you've told my story. This is exactly how I feel about my situation and my moment. And in a way that kind of meant more than the award itself because I knew that it had connected with people who had just heard it completely by chance. But even so, I think there is much more to be explored in a physical theatre production because I think then you can take the audience physically into the world as well with sound and lighting and you know, make it a kind of very interactive experience. So I'm hoping that that will still happen at some stage. So obviously if anyone listens to this and they think that they're interested, <laughs> uh, you know, do get in touch because it's not been premiered for stage. And I can just vouch immediately as you read it, it has stage written over. So I'm, I'm sure actually it will happen. It's a matter of time and sooner rather than later. Let's move on to talking about the citizen of nowhere and British people, which is the exploration of British Chinese race, class and political views. Briefly talk as through your idea and what you try to convey with both of these projects that you've used the same cast and have the same narrative. Yeah, I mean, basically the film was inspired by the play. So the play came first, Citizens of Nowhere, and that was commissioned by Chinese Arts Now. It was quite short notice, so it was a quite intense period of development. My brief for that was very, very open. They had done a similar tech so I think you've also done one of these plays yeah the one after which is overheard and so I think they had done this initially in in a festival in Shanghai which is a format where you have some actors in a public space a cafe or a restaurant and the audience has headphones and you eavesdrop on the conversation as if they're just living like customers next to you so my brief for citizens was simply to do a play which is up to 45 minutes say something about being British Chinese today from that I thought, well, actually, what do I want to say? 
And my initial feeling was because I'm half Chinese and I've grown up totally in Britain and I've never been to Hong Kong, I've never been to China. My dad only went back to Hong Kong when his mum was dying once. So I thought, I don't feel that I can speak for the British Chinese community. I want to get some source material. Unlike a South Asian community, for instance, or a black community in Britain, I think British Chinese people have been a much smaller cohort and we tend to be much more isolated. And so I think there isn't that kind of feeling of what is a community view. So I asked Chinese Arts Now to put me in touch with some other people that they knew, and I interviewed them. And one of the people that I interviewed was the actor Suhun Lee, who then became the character Jun in Citizens and in British People. He's an actor who, born in Edinburgh, he trained at RADA, and he is from a British Chinese family of his parents were first-generation immigrants. He was very keen to talk to me about class as much as anything else, that he'd had a really classical training at RADA, learning Shakespeare and restoration drama and stuff. And of course, then when he gets sent out into the world, what do people cast him as? They cast him on what he looks like, which is a very Chinese-looking man. And yet he has also a very strong Scottish accent, and he is Scottish. He felt between a lot of different stools in that he wanted to play characters like in Irving Welsh, very kind of gritty working class Scottish characters and yet nobody would ever cast him as that because primarily he looks like a Chinese person. So he spends a lot of time playing Chinese characters who are meant to be Chinese and foreign. So I thought that was really interesting and then I met another lady who became the prototype for the character Linda the Mother in Citizens. Her parents brought her over to the UK when she was 10 from Hong Kong but then she married a, an English expat and they lived an expat lifestyle outside the UK. And then at the same time, I was also looking at what was happening in politics. And I was very exercised about Brexit and Pretty Patel and hostile environment and all of those kinds of things. So I put all of those stories together and I arrived at a story about a Scottish Chinese family who the mother, played by Pixan Lim, has come down from Edinburgh to meet her children in the South Bank Centre in the cafe, which was our starting point for the commission. She has come to tell them that she's decided to move back to Hong Kong. Her son, who's an actor, is preparing to marry a Dutch girl. So there's kind of like all sorts of stuff about what does it mean for us as Europeans. And then there's the daughter, played by Jennifer Lim, who is an aspiring Tory politician who is going to stand for election in a pretty Patel style to be really kind of hard right winger because she's all for being an entrepreneur and being a self-made woman and conservative values and all of that. So we did that in the South Bank and then we did it again in a festival in a restaurant in London Bridge which was much more like your overheard experience where they were actually serving a meal during their performances which was challenging in different ways and then that went to Edinburgh in a hotel restaurant there and then Chi Tai who's a Vietnamese producer had seen that in the restaurant and she approached me to say would I like to form a team with her to pitch for uh, The Uncertain Kingdom which was a project of 20 short films about the UK in 2019. I was also in The Uncertain Kingdom. So I was in The Liar's Tree which is the second series I think they split it. You and I have so much almost meet but never quite mad. We have to have a screening back to back and do a Q&A somewhere. Yeah so I think the thing is I don't know what your experience was in terms of development but we had such a short lead because she she had come to see our play I think on a Wednesday and she contacted me on Thursday and we had to have the pitch in by Sunday so we had to pick some aspects of it so we thought we'll go with Jane the politician character as the primary story and do the night of her hustings where she has to make her pitch for why she wants to be elected for her very very white Hertfordshire community and then her brother and her mum turn up at the hustings and you know she has to work out for herself what is her identity and who does she owe the most loyalty to. 
and we based that on the play but it went through quite a lot of development of script we went through I think about nine drafts of that script then it was going to have as you will know you know we were all excited that we were going to have a cinema release and the premiere at the BFI and then Covid happened and but amazingly they have managed to put it on all the streaming platforms so we're very lucky that that it's out there in the world. In a way then the more people can see it actually you know internationally and how did um, Lepkai the director Lepkai Mo come on board? He had just done a short film for Sky Arts with Chi. They had just done this film called Automat. Lab had already worked with some of the actors as well. So, I mean, that was kind of good because he already knew them and had a rapport with them. Amazing. Also, of course, I worked with Jennifer. Jennifer Lim on Overheard. I want to delve in a little bit more about your mixed, mixed Shanghainese Welsh heritage. What was it like growing up and how do you see yourself now with that identity? I've thought a lot more about it in recent years now that there is much more visibility. I think the thing is when I was growing up there was not much visibility at all of, of East Asians in the media. When I was born down in Folkestone in Kent and we lived on the Romney Marsh as I'd said so you know I was the only person of any kind of Asian heritage in my school. My dad was the only Chinese person in the district. I don't think we experienced any kind of notably direct racism at the time. I mean you know there would be the usual stuff at school with the Chinese Japanese slitty eyes thing but nothing kind of major and then we moved to Gloucestershire when I was seven so there was a much bigger town there were at least some Chinese they did tend to be people who were in the takeaway or you know I didn't see people outside those environments you know not something where I thought this is a community that I feel part of and I think because my dad had become very assimilated he had come over from Shanghai he was born in Shanghai and then his family moved to Hong Kong after the revolution and then he came to the UK in the late 1950s. I've got photos now that show that he did come over on the ship with a handful of Chinese men, but I don't know who they are. So I think that must have been a very lonely time for him because he came over, he came to study nuclear engineering at Imperial College in London, but he couldn't do that instantly because he'd been born in Shanghai. He didn't go to Hong Kong University, so he had to do a foundation year in the UK before he would be accepted into Imperial College London. So he worked in an ice cream factory in Acton, and he went to a technical college, and then he went to university and qualified as a nuclear physicist. He became totally assimilated. Even my mum and I would be quite keen to go out to Chinese restaurants because we enjoyed UK Chinese food but to him it was this is not really proper Chinese food he was less keen than us but again I didn't really feel that I was part of a Chinese community and I think wanting to go into acting and drama when I was growing up I felt very much that I needed to kind of suppress my Chinese side and convince myself and convince other people I don't really look Chinese now of course looking back at pictures of myself when I was 18 19 I looked really Chinese back then because I had I had black hair you know I did look different but you know I would try and kid myself because I felt totally British I had a totally British pretty middle-class upbringing and in a way I kind of rejected any suggestions that I was primarily Chinese. It's like, no, you know, I'm as British as the next person. There were times when I thought that that might have been quite hurtful to my dad, but because he didn't want to go on about being Chinese and he had kind of made himself into a totally British person, that wasn't something we ever talked about. And because he died when I was quite young as well, it's not something that I could discuss with him as an adult. And I feel, you know, there's a whole hinterland there that I would really like to have talked to him about his early life and about what it was like growing up in Shanghai and how different it was when he went to Hong Hong Kong and his experiences coming to the UK on his own in those days and we didn't get to do any of that because he died when I was just turned 22. Yeah so I've been thinking about it a lot more recently but again I don't feel that I necessarily have the right to represent a 
community and that's why I like to talk to other people about their experiences. I think that suppressing or trying to deny the Chinese-ness is pretty common in terms of either British-born Chinese or wherever born Chinese or even immigrants. I certainly felt that way. I At 13, my whole family moved to Australia and very quickly it was about you know, getting rid of your Chinese-ness and assuming it in the culture. It's a matter of, I think, survival. Just don't want to stand out and, and be picked on and, and you feel like this is the only style you can have a chance to succeed and survive. I think it's become even more complex now, now that diversity is becoming such a thing and people are proactively trying to be diverse, that in a way it's gone to the other extreme that actually people are showing interest in you because you have a Chinese name. And then I feel uncomfortable about that too, because it's like, you're only interested in me because I've got a Chinese name and you're expecting me to bring some extra Chineseness to this project. And I don't feel I could do that because I haven't lived that experience. I've lived a very mainstream British experience. I had felt throughout most of my life a lot more connected to my Welsh side because, you know, my mum's family were Welsh. So although she was born in Lancashire in England, her parents were from North Wales and they moved back there when she was at college and then we would go and stay with them throughout my childhood till they died when I was 13. So you know to me I felt much more connected with that and I've been doing some work with theatre in Wales more recently. The thing is I feel that I don't necessarily fit into any of those pigeonholes and I feel quite uncomfortable that we are being asked now to come out with some very strong tribal allegiances you know and I think for somebody like me who is not 100% anything but is 100% lots of things. I find it quite hard to see where I fit in all of that landscape. As a result of your diversity, ethnicity mix, does that hinder you in any way in the writing industry? Very hard to say. I don't think it has hindered me as a writer in the past, but then I wouldn't know because there might be things that I missed that I wouldn't have known about. But equally, I think I presented myself pretty much as just a normal British person and I was taken on that basis. But I think certainly it did affect my decision not to try and be an actor because, you know, that was my first thing that I wanted to do when I was young. And I did a lot of training when I was at school age, you know, thinking, should I go to drama school? And that's what I wanted to do initially. And at that time, the landscape, was visible in the media at that time, Pixie, Pix and Lim. There was Pixie and there was David Yip, Sai Chin from an earlier era. But, you know, when I was growing up, Pixie was the most visible person. And what was she in? She was in a sitcom called Mind Your Language, in which she was asked to play a stereotype of a Chinese person. Now, I've talked to her about this and she says she doesn't feel uncomfortable about that because in those days it was a job and you just were glad to have a job and she's only again thought about it in retrospect you know I think about that now and I think gosh it was really cringe making not just for the Chinese character but the whole point of that sitcom was it was a room full of language students and they were all playing total broad brush stereotypes you know Chinese Japanese Italian Spanish you know it's really embarrassing in some respects but it was a prime time show that made them visible and she's the only person that I remembered. And then later there was David Yip in The Chinese Detective. But, you know, that did affect my decision because when I was thinking about applying for drama school and in comparison with the other people in this room with me who would all be starting out together, what would I get cast as? I would be the prostitute in the bill. I would be the girl in the takeaway. Even though that wasn't my life experience, that would be what my headshot would look like. And that's when I got more interested in production roles and directing. I was directing at university. I started writing things that I could direct. Yes. So I think it did affect me in that respect. I can't say that I felt discriminated against as a writer because I have pretty much lived out my writing career as a mainstream British person, but then I wouldn't know. And equally, I do feel that there are people showing an interest now, which is a good thing. I believe that they're kind of expecting me to come up with those Chinese type stories 
that I don't feel are my personal experience. And, you know, what do I do about that? Because on the one hand, I don't want to pass up opportunities and I would be able to research them as I would research any other story. But I can't, you know, I'm a very honest person and I'm not going to lie that this is my life because it's not. I suppose the underlying theme of a good story is common humanities. That's one of your strengths anyway, to tell the qualities of being human. Now, practically speaking, what advice would you give to someone who wants to break into the writing profession, whether in TV, screen or theatre? There's a lot more opportunity now than there was, say, 20 years ago, because, for instance, there are a lot more screenwriting courses, there are a lot more competitions, there's a lot more schemes. I think that can, can be a double-edged sword, though, because I think, you know, there are so many screenwriting courses that are churning out people who know how to structure a story, who've studied storytelling and all of that. But to me, actually, in an ideal way, you would learn it on the job by doing it. And what has shrunk is the opportunities to do it. So there's a lot more people trained to do it in theory, but the opportunity to actually get stuff made, which is when you learn the proper practical things about it, are harder to access as a writer because you have to do so much unpaid development. And that is an anti-diverse thing because obviously you can't afford to do that unless you have money from somewhere. There's people having to find lots of ways of funding their work while they're developing it. I think though there is a lot more opportunity for people to create work as writer performers and writer directors. If I was starting out now I would certainly be aiming on the screen side to be a writer director because then you have a lot more control over the vision of the work. And I think also maybe unfairly you get a lot more status as well because people tend to come out of like film school or making short films and they have a product that they can show and it is seen as being an auteur thing. You know, even like The Uncertain Kingdom, for instance, was marketed very much as a project which was taking the director as the auteur of the project. And in our case, it didn't come about that way. I mean, it was a project that I had originated and lab directed. And I think there were assumptions, even the way that that project was reviewed, it was always assumed that the director was the primary creator and it wasn't always the case. I've written some drama school short films and it's quite positive, I think, to see that the actors who are coming out of drama schools now are trained to generate their own work, to be able to go out and shoot their own short films, to do devised work with each other, so that they are each other's gene pool, as it were. They're not sitting at home waiting by the phone, waiting for somebody to give them the honour of being cast in something. They are able to generate their own work, and some of them are finding that actually they might be even more talented writers and directors and producers than they are actors. But being an actor, maybe it also gives them the confidence of pitching apart from anything else because it's a performing thing. Pitching is a very performative skill. If you have all of those skills rolled into one, I think that's a very good thing to do. So I would say to any writers who are thinking of starting out now, if you can actually have some other skills in your skill set, do go and do some acting, direct your own work wherever you can. Um, now that you've got your phone, you can go out if you've got some friends, if you're on a course, go out and shoot stuff with them, learn how to edit your own work. I wish I had done that because I think that gives you a lot more autonomy and also it gives you better calling cards because I think as a writer, it's very hard to show what is your vision when it's only on the page because really a piece of screenwriting only comes alive when it's being shot. If it's somebody else who's directing it, very often the end result will be quite different than you imagined on the page and it's not necessarily representative of your own work and that's not necessarily a bad thing it might become a, an even better thing but I think if what you're trying to do at the outset is to establish what is your voice if you can direct it yourself that gives you a bit of a boost. Which brings us neatly to if there were changes to be made in the industry 
what would you like to see? Oh gosh, well, I think paid development. And I think development is the heart of everything. You know, things don't just turn up from nowhere. Usually everything has had a development period, whether it's a short one or a long one. And at the moment, it is the freelancers who are subsidizing that period, while the people who commission it sit in, in the office on a salary. You know, and I think that's the wrong balance. I think there should be more development money out to support artists while they're actually developing their practice and developing their voice, developing the actual material. And what about in terms of the hierarchy? As you said earlier, sometimes directors take more credit. That any kind of filmmaking is always a collaborative art. It can never be the vision of just one person. It is a thing which only comes to life when it has been worked on by a whole team of people. But I think there is a kind of hierarchy in that comes from film that the director is seen as being the primary creator. And I think we should be more open to actually raising the status of writers. A lot of journalism doesn't credit writers. A lot of websites don't credit writers so that you don't even know that somebody wrote it. In terms of gatekeeping as well, I think in some sense it has become more democratic because you can shoot something and upload it somewhere yourself. But the, the hard bit is always getting to earn a living from it. Who funds it? And I think gatekeepers are still quite few and far between. And so I think, you know, when you're looking at any kind of diversity is largely about who is the gatekeepers what are the criteria by which they're deciding what is a good project what is a commercial project so I think you have to diversify from the top it's not good enough just to say well so long as we've hired some kind of ethnics who are in the room then that's that's okay because it's it's all about the whole commissioning landscape and where you put the money like everything it's like where does the money go who is funding stuff who is supported to create work that's what it comes down to. If you have to summarize your qualities in three factors, what would they be? I think I'm quite truthful. I'm quite subtle. So I think I'm about subtext. I'm about subtlety. I'm about truthfulness and about making you feel something. And what are you currently working on? I'm on the scheme called Sphinx 30 at the moment, which is a scheme run by Sphinx Theatre to celebrate their 30 years in existence. And they have commissioned seed funding for 30 female playwrights to write main stage plays, which again is to try to redress the balance that women are around in theatre, but they tend to be given smaller studio spaces, smaller cast, programmed less. So this is a scheme which is to raise up a whole bunch of female writers. And we've all been seed funded to do a big play. So I'm working on my play for Theatre Cluid in North Wales and um, where I was writer in residence a couple of years back. So we don't know whether that's actually going to be staged at all but I'm writing it notionally with them in mind and their stage in mind. Um, it's a story that is particular to their area and some personal stories from my Welsh background. And then I'm pitching some radio. I'm waiting to hear about some other things which I can't talk about yet. Ooh, watch this space! <laughs> And I read somewhere that you have ambition and probably your first ambition to direct. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, I don't know whether I've left it too late now. I think because that was something that I always did want to do when I was younger and I kind of got sidetracked from it. And I think now that I'm writing original work where the story is much more personal to me and I do have a very strong vision of what it should look and feel like as well, then I do have the desire to try and direct that myself as well. So who knows whether that will come to pass or not. And I have to try and make it happen, I guess. It would be great to um, see you direct one of plays that you write especially the one with your mother the things we never said so for people who are listening out there who want to put on a play you have the writer director right here <laughs> all right thank you so much Ming 
Well, thank you very much, Alice. Well, it really was like taking a writing masterclass with this two-part interview with Ming Ho, who so generously led us into her professional and personal worlds. To find out more about Ming Ho, you can go to her website and blog, mingholwriterblogspot.com. Next week, I can't even believe it, but it's our first season finale. I'm not going to kid you. It's been a lot of hard work and long hours put in from my co-host, Michelle, and our producer, Dee. And I'm so proud we have got so far, and I'm sure you agree with me. We really do deserve a pat on our shoulder. And if you'd like to join in and give us a pat on our shoulders too, please cheer us on by connecting with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As always, we cannot tell you how much we appreciate your support and feedback. So write to us at hello at creationcollective.com and let us hear your voice. Next week for our finale for the first season, we have Malaysian psychotherapist and coach Alison Manu Morgan. She'll be here to deconstruct how our cultural heritage has influenced the way we think and behave, our pitfalls and our strengths. So... Get your diving gear up next week as we'll be going under to find out ways to achieve personal growth and I personally just can't wait. Until then, stay creative and feel free to be. You've been listening to Creation Collective, empowering you and your creative journey. Free Free to to be. be.